Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Jenny Scott is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist formerly with the New York Times, author of The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father. Her father was Robert Montgomery Scott. Her mother said to be the inspiration for Tracy Lord, Catherine Hepburn's character in the Philadelphia story. If you read the book, and I highly recommend it, you might think it a novel, but it's total nonfiction. And this is Janny Scott. Hey, Janny, I met your father once. It was later in his life. I remember it well. It was an art museum fundraiser at his home, Ardrossan. He was tuxedo clad. He was distinguished. He was a handsome guy. He was a good host and he was charming. Yes, you're absolutely right. That was the same guy. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me at book talks since this book came out and said, your father was the most charming man I ever met. (laughs) Could there have been a book without the diaries? I guess not. 
Well, it's a very interesting point. Um, I embarked upon the book not knowing that I would ever find the diaries, which my father, as you know, had promised me when I was much younger, saying um, he wanted me to have them when he died. And when I asked him why, he said, well, you're the writer. And that was it. He never discussed it with me again. And I never dared bring it up because I was afraid he'd withdraw the offer. Um, when he died, I didn't couldn't find the diaries anywhere. And I didn't get involved in doing this book until years later. I tried once again, still couldn't find most of them. And then I was in the middle of writing the third chapter when I stumbled upon one diary in my the, in my mother's basement, the basement of the house he'd left 20 years earlier, and realized I had to search the entire house and did finally find 40 years of diaries, all in identical black three-ring binders, chronologically organized and seemingly waiting to be found in a wooden chest with a padlock set to one digit off from the phone number. Um, but yes, so I did embark upon the book not knowing I would find the diaries, but the diaries were such a blockbuster that it kind of, it didn't reshape the structure of the book, but it kind of emphasized the trajectory of the story and really made it a far more satisfying experience for me in that I was able to plumb the character of my father through his own voice in his very personal recollections. I'm going to read from 203, and then I'm going to hope that you will read a part of 204. So I'll, I'll go first. My father okay. kept diaries nearly all of his adult life. His medium of choice was college-ruled filled paper in a black three-ring binder. He loaded sheaves of it, I now know, into a slim vinyl-covered book that traveled in his brown leather briefcase. He wrote on station platforms, in his office, at men's clubs after work. From time to time, he transferred his finished pages into extra-large binders. Each one was big enough to hold hundreds of pages on its bangle-size rings. The binders he chose were nondescript, and he stored them out of sight. He wrote in black ink using a black Schaefer fountain pen that he'd bought the day after he and my mother were married. He occasionally thought that if he were to lose that pen... Their marriage would come to an end. His penmanship was steady and even, like waves on an etching of the ocean. If he fell behind, he relied on the scribblings in his pocket calendar to catch up. Once, he destroyed several years' worth of diary entries to make sure they'd never be discovered. On another occasion, he locked what remained of the 1960s in a steel box, then forgot where he'd stashed the key. Fifteen years later, a flat key surfaced in a stud box he'd taken to England. He tried it. And the strong box sprang open. Will you turn the page and share with me the moment that you found that first diary, which begins with, by the winter of 2014? Sure. By the winter of 2014, I'd given up hope of finding the missing volumes. My father had been dead for nine years. It had been three years since his girlfriend, Margaret, had handed over a few short diaries she told me she'd found in his top drawer. I'd asked her to let me know if anything else turned up. She'd never mentioned the subject again. On the day after Christmas, I was in the house my father had left 21 years earlier. My mother and I and my children were poking around in the basement. In a small room past the furnace and the boiler, she pointed to a tall wooden box, the kind, of, the kind that moving companies use for packing dishes. The box was filled, she said, with what appeared to be love letters from a long dead from long dead men to that great aunt who died around the time of the end of the Vietnam War. They'd been entrusted to my father after her death. Maybe there's something in there of interest, my mother suggested, with nothing particular in mind. Unlikely, I figured, but why not check? 
Soon, my daughter Mia and I were bent over the box, pawing through drifts of love letters, digging to China. Up from the bottom floated a black-bound notebook, like a boot on a fishing pole in an old cartoon. (laughs) It had a faux leather cover. It belonged on the desk of a small-town bank officer in one of those movies admired for getting every period detailed just right. Inside, the pages were lined. The first one was dated two days from two days before the birth of Hopi, my father, my parents' first child. The handwriting in black fountain pen ink was my father's. The book was an early journal from his mid twenties. Its contents were unlike anything about my father that I'd ever read. What did that feel like for you? <clears throat> um, a kind of tingling sensation emotionally and physically. Um, you know. Uh, fascination, um, a little probably frisson of terror, um, but I just wanted immediately to consume the whole thing, and once I had, it was full of relatively short, it was a relatively short volume, there wasn't that much in it, but it was extraordinarily brilliantly written and full of the most profound and painful insight into his own character. Um, it was a combination of of uh, the thrill, really, of discovering uh, a window into a person who heretofore I'd found quite opaque, much as I adored him and wanted to understand him. So I think any child who's ever found a parent somewhat baffling might have the same experience. What was the most painful part of the story for you to reveal about family history? Well, um, I'm a journalist and, you know, I spent 30 years as a newspaper reporter. So I'm, um, I think, trained to attempt to look at things with a a certain degree of detachment and try to find um, some version of the truth. Uh, So I perhaps was well, better prepared by my professional uh, experiences than some people would. Um, On top of that, my father wasn't exactly discreet about some of the things that other people might perhaps have um, tried to obscure. He had a, a, a complex um, emotional life. Um, there were other, I always had known there were other women in his life. Um, so it wasn't um, really a shock to me to discover that he described some of these things in great detail. I had known that my father was a serious alcoholic in that we had attempted for years to get him to stop drinking and he'd eventually tried, but but failed. I mean, he, it turned out, I learned from the diaries that he tried many times on his own. So I think really in terms of painful, it was the intensity of the experience. And the it, I, what I also discovered was that he, he believed in some form that he had some sort of um, mood disorder, I suppose you'd say. That's not quite the word he used, but serious highs and lows and periods of anxiety and depression, none of which had ever been treated. So to see him document those things in great detail, those were the things that were most painful because it gave me an insight uh, to a sort of dark band of almost despair in him at, at times. So I think that was the most painful to me, not the things you would naturally imagine, you know, evidence of affairs or that sort of thing.
The, the book is about many things. It's it's a book about wealth. It's a, a snapshot of American history at a particular time. It's also a book about a very prominent family and a well-known individual, at least on a, a regional basis. What made you think that your quest to sort of unlock this family history would be of of interest to people beyond just those of us who grew up in the area? Well, of course, I didn't know whether it would be, but I wanted very much for the story to be read more broadly, partly because I'm a professional writer and I was I ended up putting, you know, six or seven years into this project. So I I want it to be as widely read as possible. So I I I didn't know whether it would fly. Um, I was encouraged by the reaction of my agent, who's no pushover, and also by my by editor at the time that I, I sold it on the basis of the first chapter, but they seemed very excited by it. So I, I felt the key was to write it in such a way that it would have universal appeal um, to, to make it try to make it read as close to like a novel without in any way uh, diverting myself from attempting to establish exactly what happened. And I think I I did that. I didn't I didn't take a lot of leaps of imagination. I stuck as closely as I could to the facts. But I felt I had a sort of gut feeling that there were universal truths in this story, like you say, about about wealth, about inheritance, about the the multiple the sort of ambiguities of inheritance, the way things that are passed on, and I don't mean just money, as in my case, my family's case, money, land, and houses, but also values and genes, how those things can be a, a, a wonderful positive for some people, you know, inequitably distributed, and they can also be a burden and undermine decision-making and choices at an early age. You know, I have a feeling that beneficiaries sometimes without knowing what they're doing, make decisions early in their life when we have to make crucial decisions that that they don't really have enough experience yet to um, weigh with a kind of the wisdom that might result in a better decision. So I felt there were universal truths if I could just write it in such a way that that would be clear. Well, and, and by, the characters by the way, were basically industry. Interesting. Yeah. You, you definitely succeeded in that regard. But while I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if at the outset she thought, meaning Jenny Scott, you, hey, this is a little risky because it's a hell of a family story, but I wonder if it'll have universal appeal. And, and by the way, the... The, the backdrop for The Beneficiary, which is Janney's book, is Ardrossan, this once 800-acre estate in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And I, I'm not alone in noticing some parallels. Just last weekend, my wife and I went to see Downton Abbey, the movie. You know, this is as close as we come in the United States. This property, this home was built in the early 20th century, I, I think 1911. I'm doing this from memory, but I think you say there was like a, a, a staff of 16 at that time. Yes, according to my father there uh, at the at its height 16 people sat down to lunch in the servants dining room. And wow. that of course doesn't necessarily include everyone who was working outside and it was a functioning dairy farm. So as you say it was a, a, a an estate a British style estate roughly the size of Central Park. Uh, by the time I was born, you know, it was a half hour from the fourth largest city in the country operating like a kind of 19th century estate. You you grew up there, but early in your teens left, I guess, when your father had the, the posting, uh, along with Walter Annenberg at the Court of St. James, and then you never came back. You went off to school, and that was it. 
That's right. Um, my parents moved back the year I graduated from high school in England. I went to college. I went on to become a journalist. I you know, lived in um, Massachusetts, New Jersey, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, and back in New York. But I never uh, lived as an adult um, on Ardrossan, the, the estate. My mother, my parents moved back here, and my mother still lives in the house that I grew up in. So I've been back many times, but, but no, my entire adult experience was elsewhere. The book is the current uh, reading for my wife's book club. So in deference to her, this is her next question. Uh, I'll Actually, I'll pair it with the, the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald, who famously said that the rich are different than you and me. My wife asks, at what point did you realize in your upbringing that it was very different from others? Um, I appreciate that your wife's book group is reading it. Uh, I, I, you know, as I say, I grew up here for 14 years. I went to, you know, a day school in Bryn Mawr. And uh, so my experience was very much rooted on the main line and in this particular place. And while I understood that my family had had more land than most people did um, and that my grandmother was the only grandmother I knew who had a herd of cows, um, I, I should say that my grandmother is the one who is allegedly based that Tracy Lord was somewhat informed by, not my mother. Um, but anyhow, I knew that there were kind of characteristics that were different, but I didn't get the extent of it at all until I went away to college and I was surrounded by people totally different from me. And I fell in with, you know, kind of a newspaper crowd at, at Harvard, and I wrote for the Harvard Crimson, and so I, I was meeting people who'd grown up, grown up in urban areas in, in a really different situation, and I remembered coming back one Thanksgiving early on in my college career with two people who I didn't know terribly well. One was a friend, a first-generation American, and the other was someone I didn't know at all, and they were going to drop me off and go off to where they were, and I hadn't really thought about what it would be like to be approaching this place. Uh, and exposing myself to their judgment, frankly. And as we were approaching, um, the, the, going along one of the roads, kind of a minute or two away from my parents' house, um, my friend said jokingly, so where are the slave cottages? Do you have your own police force? Right. <laughs> Things like that brought home to me very clearly that this was not something that I could, you know, uh, that I wanted, frankly, to talk about for a long time. It's not... It's not insignificant that I didn't write this book until my my 60s. So two final questions, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. It occurs to me that today there's a new type of titan being born, not from control of natural resources and railroads, but from technology and finance. What lessons should these new masters of the universe apply to how they structure their estates, treat their offspring, their beneficiaries, based on what you reveal in this book? What's the lesson for them? Well, I, I was really just telling a story, but you're right. Uh, when you read this story and see what happened over the course of 100 years in a particular family where there was a lot of wealth, um, it does raise questions. And I was very struck by the fact that people are making money now in some ways very much like the way my great-grandfather, who was an investment banker, made some of the money that, that built Ardrossan. So the thing that came through to me was this matter of the ambiguities of inheritance. We pass things on. We set up these trusts in order to protect wealth and, and preserve it for subsequent generations. It seems like a wonderful thing. And yet, how much thought goes into how exactly that will play out in the lives of 
subsequent generations, which is, of course, very difficult to predict. But if you look at my family, some people benefited enormously and, and flourished in that circumstance. And others, it was a much more complicated experience. So I would say I'm not didn't set out to write this with any kind of propagandistic purpose. But I would say uh, just think hard about how you want to set these things up, um, it, you know, so that you uh, are aware of the ways that this can play out both positively and negatively. And, and, and related and finally, fortunes are made and lost. That's a lesson that also comes through in the book. Better to have had a fortune and lost it or to never have had it to begin with. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I do not in any way want to seem ungrateful for my um, own good fortune and for all the things that my family did for, has done for me and have given me. Um, so it, it's a little hard for me to to answer that question. I I think the uh, the sort of surface answer would be, of course, it's better to have. Um, you know, a cushion and opportunity, the kind of opportunities that privilege, frankly, gives you. Um, but there there can be downsides. But to say that the, those downsides somehow outweigh the downsides of poverty, I, I would never claim that. I asked it poorly. I meant assuming that in the end you'll be left with nothing. And I don't want to imply that Janny Scott is left with nothing. I just mean, is it better to have had the taste and lose it or to have never had the taste to begin with? Oh, I guess I'd have to say probably the former, you know, at least you have two, those two experiences, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, it's a hard question to answer, but I would never argue that somehow we've suffered worse than people who don't have, who've never had this, this experience. Has the book been optioned? It hasn't um, that I know of. I haven't really been bugging my um, editor, my publisher, I mean, my agent on this subject, because my mother said to me, I hope they're not going to make it into a movie. So that gave me some pause, but um, not so far. Yeah, I, I can see it. I, I don't I don't know whether I'm seeing it on a television screen or on a bigger screen, but. I would be shocked if it doesn't happen. I wish you good things with it. It's really a thoroughly, honestly, it's like a novel. It is like a novel, but it's it's nonfiction, and it's a great story. Well, thank you, Michael. I, I'm thrilled that you liked it. Jenny, I appreciate it. Best wishes. Me too. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jenny Scott. The book is The Beneficiary, TC. Fortune, you know, Misfortune, and the Story wow. of My Father. So I drive by our Drossen almost every day, and right. it is... Um, it's a stunning, stunning part of the world. Um, it, a lot of it has been has been sold off. It's not the 800-acre estate that it was, but the cows are still there. The barn is still there. The big house is still there. You can hardly you can't see it from the road, you know, because it's, it's way back. Um, it is. Uh, I was in it a, once. Astonishing. I was in it. I've once. never been in it. I've never. Yeah, been I was in it, in it once. Past it on the the night of the the fundraiser where I met her father charming and and charming and, and, and the word you used yeah and by the way I I did misspeak shame on me her father was Robert Montgomery Scott it's it's her grandmother who was the inspiration for Tracy Lord the Catherine Hepburn character in the Philadelphia story and it is like an American version of Downton Abbey. I'm trying to think. It's High Clear Castle, I, I think, where... Okay, so High Clear Castle is, is Downton Abbey. This is very Downton Abbey-like, and, yeah. and it's still, it still... It exists, but it's been whacked into a lot of pieces recently, yeah. uh, which is unfortunate, but I don't, I don't know how you hold it off, because uh, even though it's not 800 acres anymore, you know, like, who, who wants to uh, maintain that kind of a house? 
pretty um, extraordinary. Yeah, but I asked I asked an awkward question at the end. What I was really suggesting I, is I understood what you meant. You did. You meant yes. You meant would you rather have be either born rich or have might, made a lot of money and have an unbelievable lifestyle and then lose it all and don't have it? Would Which would have to have be gone brutal. From a lot right? to a little. Yes. Right. Or would you rather never have had it at all? I this is a great question. I think you'd rather never have had it at all because then you absolutely know what you don't have. Well, ignorance is bliss. Correct. You know? Uh yeah, that that's what I was that's what I was striving for. You, well, you got it. Good. Yeah. Thank you yeah, for that. No, no, I I understood. I think she was thinking of it more in the in the um through the lens of the beneficiary, um, which is not what happened to them. So that is um and I think she answered well, it well but for given many, what she but thought for you many, meant. But for many in the family, I think wealth and stature was a curse. You know, it's 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 not all uh, it's not all positive. Is well, as is so often the case. I mean, I can't tell right. you how many people in, in our area, which is an area that has people of extraordinary wealth, that the, the you know the parents perhaps are okay, but the children are not, and you know, so it just sort of depends what goes on, and it's it's really something. It's really, really an interesting an interesting uh, sociological <laughs> experiment, sort of what goes on in these families. Bottom line, Michael, you never know what's going on behind a door, whether it's the door of an 800-acre estate or the door of a row house uh, in Philadelphia. To, you never to, know. To quote the late, great Grace Snags, you don't know if the roof is leaking unless you're the one inside. Right? Amen. Amen to uh, The book is called The Beneficiary. Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father. Honestly, I think you'll you'll love it. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program. Weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts— to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.